0: What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effing World Politics Review. If you're a fan of undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, It's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for Undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub/undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the twenty-five percent discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train. wpr.pub/undiplomatic. Peace. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. Full team today, Gabby Magnuson, hey. Jake Dello, What's up? Kiara Mitchell, Hi, and Pete McKenzie. <laughs> hey. I should do the names in order so that like, it's very predictable, I, but I don't do anything efficiently.
1: Um the only
0: order you have that is <laughs> fucking up my last name. Yeah. It's, it's the only order there is. I got but you right. I today. love it. I don't mind. All right. Well, two quick hits before uh getting into everything. One is uh, a piece by Kate Kaiser, shout out. Uh she works at Win Without War, she's been a, a very productive contributor to the progressive foreign policy sort of discourse. And she's got a piece in ink stick media. It's titled like America is ready for human security is Congress. It's not so much about human security, like indirectly. It's really about the fact that like hyperpolarization in America um, has changed what Democratic Party constituents think foreign policy should be, think national security should be, right? So like this progressive foreign policy movement that we talk about all the time, um, eclectic as it is, it, the, the grassroots of the Democratic Party, like the progressive agenda in foreign policy and the foreign policy agenda in the Congress by the Democratic Party, and especially in the House of Representatives, there's very little resemblance. There's this huge disconnect, Um, and so kate kaiser is highlighting this disconnect it's it's posing the rhetorical question of like are we going to keep maintaining as a democratic party a foreign policy you know agenda that basically caters to the interests of like arms manufacturers of of authoritarian governments abroad or are we going to be more responsive to the base right and it's the it's a rhetorical question in the sense of like Obviously, you want to if you're going to make strategy it needs to be on trend, right? If you're going to be swimming against the current, if you're going to be fighting trends, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle. Like that doesn't make sense. And you know, polarization is one of the major trends in politics in America and it has co- the spillover of consequence for foreign policy is that what the left wants on foreign policy is just so different from the institutional Left of the Democratic Party. So uh, she's calling for a change. She's been calling for a change. Many people are. And the reason this comes up now, what she's highlighting in the piece, is because Elliot Engel, who was uh, the Democratic chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, so the face of like institutional foreign policy for Democrats, he was kind of a hawk, you know, and uh, very much an establishment sort of you know, lukewarm centrist figure on foreign policy. And he just got trounced, beat, whooped by Jamal Bowman, who is a school teacher who ran on an anti-war progressive foreign policy platform and whooped his fucking ass. And so it's like, that's a winner, man. You can win on this stuff and it's on trend and it's it's morally congruent with like who we are. So it's like be strategic and moral at the same time. Let's do this, you know? So shout out to Kate not shout out to Kanye West which is the other <laughs> quick quick hit <laughs> um if you've been on social media or watching the news the past couple weeks you know Kanye announced his bid on 4th of July to run for the presidency i think he's dead serious about this it's well, just was, that he's he not he's not a serious dead. person but like this is i think he's going to I think he's going to really try to do this and fuck it up for Joe Biden.
1: Um, We said the same thing about Trump, that it was totally insane. That it's crazy that a reality TV star can become president. And (laughs) Ronald Reagan was a B-movie actor.
0: This is my fear, dude. you
1: know, crazier things have happened.
2: I just think it's like, not only have crazier things happened, it would make a huge amount of sense if incredibly alienated young people from all across America who don't vote. Find the idea of Kanye appealing as a protest vote or as a troll or as a, you know, just fuck the system. Like, I can totally see him getting it. I I can't see him getting enough to win. I can totally see him getting enough to throw the election or be a spoiler. Yeah. That seems totally feasible to me.
3: Man, if 2016 really showed up with a harambe, I mean, (laughs) like, all bets are off at this
1: point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's it's, it's devastating to think about. What really troubles me is, like, uh, out, out of everybody that I know, in the sort of the the serious policy world and the pundit class there's not a single person who takes this seriously like pete said like i don't think he's going to fucking win obviously he's not he's on he's on the ballot in one state in oklahoma but that's going to increase like by the time this is done he'll probably be on the ballot in like you know 15 states or something but you can still write him in as president and that takes every time someone does that it takes a vote away from biden I don't think that people who are going to vote for him were going to vote for Trump. I think people who are going to vote for him yeah. either didn't vote in 2016 or they voted for Trump in 2016, but they wouldn't in 2020. I'm worried that nobody's taking it seriously. People
1: might definitely vote for him. I think you know, definitely the accelerationist crowd would have a field day with Kanye. Uh, yeah. Uh, they want to start. They want to start elect that man to the White House because <laughs> they want to start a something
0: that's the thing like this looks to me very much like something that was coordinated with trump um yeah and if it wasn't explicitly it was implicitly the way it's like russia if you're listening i would love for you to find those emails like that's the the indirect Mm -hmm. plea you know like this is clearly working for trump on trump's behalf It's only a question if there was a specific attempt at collusion here, but like there's no way that this math doesn't work out in Trump's favor if Kanye is doing this seriously. So no, I'm not gonna be an advisor on his campaign.
1: (laughs) Even if you get free shoes.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I thought about like infiltrating his campaign and then like feeding him bad advice.
2: (laughs) If you got like, if you got a kid Van, if if Kanye West directly offered you his like chief foreign policy advisor spot, <laughs> what would be your response?
0: So I actually seriously did think about this. I never talked to Kanye. I never interacted with him. But this is something that could be like asked, right? And then I thought about it as like, you know, like out of the foreign policy pundits that I know, like I'm kind of the most. Iconoclastic and not in a necessarily a good way, but just like I'm so offbeat that maybe, maybe Kanye would be mistaken to think that, like, oh, an offbeat foreign policy advisor would work. I was like, well, maybe this could work. And I was like, this is all fucking levels of crazy. And then I had, I, I posted something hypothetical on Twitter and like I got a bunch of DMs from friends who were like, don't do it, don't do it. And like, <laughs> It was never actually on the table. It's not an option. But, like, if it were, it made me think, like, well, what if it were, you know? And I I, I basically decided that if he wasn't running for president and he just wanted a guru, sign me up. Because then, like, it's like you get a chance to influence him, you know?
2: That's fantastic. But if he's going to... comes out with some deep takes on...
0: Yeah, like...
2: Growing cold war between China and America.
0: I could, I could convince him to like change his hat or something, but the as running for president, it is like a malicious act. So, like, you couldn't be party to that. So, like, if any serious foreign policy people get reached out to by Kanye, you have to say no, you have to say no, you cannot serve that right because it's serving a bad agenda and so that's sort of like like i actually went through the mental math of this and i think the conclusion is like you cannot do it anyway but just to be clear it's all hypothetical
1: yeah this sounds a bit silly but i have the feeling that gen z and the millennial are going to be undone by the meme we're going to be undone by this because he started running as a meme it's a meme and it's a joke, but now he's going to take votes away from Joe Biden. Yeah,
0: that's the nature Mm -hmm. of memes, though. They're like, over (laughs) they're oversimplified, you know, like they've reduced (laughs) the meaning of things. And there's like they're laced with irony most of the time, too, which is like not helpful.
1: Let's do prediction market, where we get Vans to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for prediction market this week, question one. Will there be any official international action taken over the latest Azerbaijani and Armenian border conflict, which has left 16 dead before December?
0: So, before uh, Jake posted this question on Slack, uh, I didn't even hear about this. So, I'm going to say no, because I don't think anybody else is, you know, hearing this really either. Azerbaijan and Armenia are not within a contested sphere of influence. This doesn't really trump COVID. It's not a feature in the presidential election. I mean, it's not clear to me that like this el- rises to the level. It's fewer people killed than in the Sino Indian border clash. I, I yeah. think it's just not, it hasn't elevated to a level that like it registers on people's radar or like the UN's radar, right? So I think this is no, there will not be international action. Although I also don't know what that would mean. It's
1: unfortunate. Well, this question was actually a convoluted way of uh confirming one of your earlier predictions. Because a few months ago we made the prediction of or well, I asked a question that will Armenia and Azerbaijan work together to fight COVID? And I think just by asking this question we proved you said no. And you were right. They instead um killed
0: sixteen of each other. Awesome. I love being right. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> Is it something
4: you want to
0: proud of being right about? I mean, yeah, that part's not awesome, but okay. Well, so maybe I'd like to amend that statement. I love being right when it's about good things. Okay.
1: Question two. Will any further arms sales be made to Japan before November following the possible sale of $23, $23 billion worth of fighter aircraft? to japan sorry listeners i i already fucked that up once and i'm not reading the whole question again so
0: japan is set to acquire um a bunch of f-35s so this is so the the short answer is like uh no not before november the reason though is like um arm sales processes or at least when it involves the u.s are like notoriously slow yeah. they're extremely lengthy Kind of uh, technocratic processes. There's a lot of legal hurdles to jump through. They involve um, letters of expressions of intent, cross checking human rights abuses against people in the acquisition chain. And like, it's just a super complicated process. And the F 35 question has been in the pipeline for years before this decision okay. really came up. So, like, you sort of have a lot of lead time before you know a decision will come. So like I think before November the answer is probably no.
1: I I expect if you don't know the exact price of one of them, but is twenty three billion dollars is that gonna give them a lot of aircraft? Or is that are they just really expensive?
0: Uh they're really expensive. I don't know how many it buys though. I know it buys more than okay. one. Like a squadron. Yeah.
1: But... <laughs> You'd hope so. Yeah.
0: Well they gotta That's fight cool. China. This is for China. So like <laughs> I don't know that that's enough. But... Another
1: prediction? Yeah. <laughs> <That's a good laughs> prediction part two. So. Yeah. Question three. Will any other powers offer Hong Kong nationals types of asylum following Australia's extension of international visas?
0: You know, I hope so. Um, I'm going to say yes, mostly out of hope. And because like analytically, I'm not sure what to ground the decision in. I do know that China has become its own worst enemy um, the last yeah. like six months to a year. It's It's been like pretty unbelievable, actually. The only country on earth... That scores more own goals than the United States is fucking China, so I think they've alienated much of the democratic world, uh, and I could imagine that other countries are going to start offering asylum to Hong Kongers. Or I would hope so at least.
1: Well, yeah, because the response from China from this to Australia has been quite a bit more intense than usual. You know, calling it gross interference. Mm-hmm. In the international affairs, the top to stop meddling.
0: Yeah, I get the sense really that doing. like Australia is emerging as a kind of rival to China, but like it's not at the same level as China. So like it's an almost like an asymmetric rivalry or something. Yeah. Australia is still very much, you know, in the pocket of China economically. Very much so. But Politically, there's a lot of antagonism there and a lot of like fear mongering among elites and foreign interference concerns that are largely valid. And like the new Australian defense strategic update was, I mean, aimed pretty squarely at China. So like Australia pivoting its military to think about a China conflict. It's, there's a lot in the, in the hopper here that, that seems like it would work toward pushing Australia as, into being an antagonist of China more than in the past
1: well yeah i I, I can't help but agree it just seems like australia at the moment is the land of two poles you know there's the fence end which is very anti-china and what they stand for but mm. then you have the economic side which feeds it quite literally so maybe yeah. you're gonna have to choose a side it's quite a contradiction yeah well there's prediction market this week and i have to shoot off team so see you next hey. week
4: time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't
0: have to. All right, for Stay Off Twitter this week, uh, I've got three quick ones. First from David Cleon, who is, he calls himself, or somebody called him this, a ubiquitous Twitter pundit. um, But he writes for a lot of different uh, platforms. And he is heavily engaged on Twitter. So he tweeted out that the show Chernobyl came out just over a year ago. And a popular center-right talking point was that it showed how communist misgovernance inevitably leads to preventable mass casualties. Up to 16,000 deaths across Europe have been traced to the actual Chernobyl nuclear disaster. And then he goes, anyway, just thinking out loud. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. because multiples of, of deaths have occurred as a result of mismanagement of the pandemic particularly in the United States, by a right-wing administration, right? So there's a certain irony in, um, you know, pointing to Chernobyl as this lesson of, like, bad governance when you're doing the bad governance and killing orders of magnitude more people, man. So uh, shout out to Chernobyl. I mean, David Kleon. And then a second. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out, Shout to, out to my
2: man <laughs> Chernobyl. <Yeah. laughs> Shout out, out to the Soviet regime. Yeah, not
0: so much. Okay.
3: Jake's, Jake's um, <laughs> agenda is really working on Van here. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> not a Marxist, to be clear, not a Marxist. <laughs> second tweet comes from my man, friend of the pod, Dan Nexon. He says quite simply, Broad anti-fascist coalitions are good. We want broad anti-fascist coalitions. And it's too bad Jake's not here to see this one because, like, <laughs> uh, I almost wanted this specifically for him. He- he- Nexon is subtweeting this miniature controversy where, like, Angela Davis and Bill Crystal. We're part of the same coalition against the Trump administration, against fascism. The idea is simply that like you don't want your opposition to fascism to be narrowly constituted. You don't want it to be owned by like a fringe group. You want it to have popular buy-in. Even even going so far as like you want people who are their own views flirt with fascism itself. You want them to be inside the tent to be formally opposed to fascism, right? Particularly when it's real, like as the Trump administration. And so he's just highlighting what seems to be like a reasonable first principle, which is like you want your coalitions to be broad when the object is anti-fascism. I feel like that makes sense. So, But I think on the left, this is like a controversial take, you know?
2: I mean, to be fair, everything on the left is a controversial take, so.
0: <laughs> there are, yeah, this, this is one of the other funny things about the left. There's like no consensus positions, really. There's sort of like you flock to uh, the same handful of like guiding principles, but like you weigh them differently, you prioritize them differently. There's like a lot of different mm-hmm. views about their cleavages on different issue sets. It's eclectic. That's part of the nature of the left. But um, yeah, anti-fascism is definitely one of the priorities. Third tweet. Blake Herzinger, another ubiquitous Twitter pundit, actually, he says there was like this conversation about Biden foreign policy and there were a lot of people voicing concerns that I did too, to be honest, that Biden's decision making on foreign policy and his staff, his team, were going to be making decisions that are very like Obama 2.0, a reversion to history kind of thing and Blake in the tweet says look a return to pre-trump status quo would be a disaster uh, i'm terrified that biden's team would like to return to what they were doing before which was really not that impressive and the thing that i think is lost on a lot of people that come from my orbit the you know obama technocrat team was this that like we had a lot of shitty policies and we felt justified at the time, right? You, you're invested in the stuff that you do uh, on an ongoing basis. But Obama's foreign policy was not great. And it, it felt toward those last couple of years like it was getting worse and worse or like more disconnected from reality, particularly on things like China. And um, like we were holding back the tide of change somehow. People who worked on those policies, there's like a high risk that they show up in a, a Biden administration thinking that like if they do the same things they did before, it will have the same effects that it did then. Not only is that not true and not going to happen, but like it's not clear that you should want it to happen anyway, you know, like because... The policies were already flawed and imperfect. So if we're just thinking ahead about a post-Trump world where Biden is president, it seems to me, it seems to Blake, it seems to a lot of others that we should be trying to encourage Biden to not just, you know, replicate the sort of like risk averse pragmatism of the Obama era.
3: Is Biden doing that sort of, isn't that kind of one of his platforms though? Kind of be like, oh, remember the ye olde good days? Like, so he's pandering to like- the old Obama crowd or is
0: it kind of just kind of like restoration is the, the, the buzzword, which is a awful buzzword. Restor. It sounds like a house hunters episode. Um, (laughs) And that's if there were a single word to like summarize his foreign policy, I think that would probably be it. What I've seen from a lot of people in the Biden orbit is that they say that they recognize the world is different the river is different. The man is different. And so when the man goes to the river, it's not the same fucking river or the same man. Right. But then they they say all of this like standard conventional wisdom centrist crap about every single fucking issues, <laughs> yeah. you know, on on China, on North Korea, on Iran, on Paris Climate Accords. It's all just the like normal, safe decisions that you would do without really thinking. There's nothing decisive in any of it there's no like th- unified field theory for the whole thing. So I don't know. I'm 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 concerned about just repl- it seems like the most likely thing is a, to replicate Obama's presidency. Um, and that would that would be better than Trump, but that's definitely not good. So
3: cracking on to my first tweet of the week, I've got one from Chris Hayes who's the host of All In with Chris on MSNBC. Um his tweet reads, "Definitely just a weird coincidence that the last two Republican presidencies Both featured legacy cases who coasted on their inheritance, didn't win the popular vote to get elected, and then, once in power, ushered in world historical catastrophe and suffering. So, like, Van, (laughs) do you think this is like a case of coincidence, like maybe? Or is there like a larger force at play when it comes to like, I guess, the recent Republican presidencies?
0: Yeah. So maybe this is like a cheap shot on his part and my part, but like our biases are showing. but. In my lifetime, Republicans have not been serious. They have not been responsible stewards of any notion of the national interest. And Chris Hayes is pointing out how, like, the last two Republican presidencies have been, like, blown up, you know, pretty disastrously. Um, And it's because they, like, they operate on an ideology that is, like, pretty Weak and disastrous itself, right? Uh, Some hybrid strands of like neoliberalism and neoconservatism and Bible thumping. It's like, fuck. And and then like fringe (laughs) racism. It's like, God, that's a toxic brew, you know? But, you know, and then it's even it's even worse now, I guess. But like it almost doesn't matter what the Democrats are as long as they're sort of like rational and competent. And in some ways, Biden is like the epitome of this or the beneficiary of this. Democrats don't have to be as ideological as like I think personally they should be in order to beat these psychopaths. Right. You just look at the track record. And if you're rational, you cannot possibly think that Republicans are good for America. You know, yeah. they're not like conservatives in other countries, and conservatives in other countries have fucking problems too. Um, that they're, they're, but they're worse even than conservatives in a lot of other countries. So, anyways, he's on to something.
2: If you're rational, is doing a lot of work in that sentence. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: but also like that's but then it's the it's the grand old party. It's the natural party of government. How can we how can we resist that allure of competence that the, the Republicans have always exuded?
0: It's so crazy to me that, like, not that long ago, maybe like 15 years ago, the Republicans were viewed, they were viewed as, like, the responsible stewards of of statecraft and, like, national security and stuff. That seems so fucking silly. But also, like, while people thought that in, like, the 90s, it was also the period of, like, Rush Limbaugh and... This fucking proto-fascist alt-right talk radio stuff where they're trial ballooning the stuff that Trump would like seize on and amplify later. The path to conspiracy theory was laid in the 80s and the 90s in the Republican Party. And like, I don't know, like we're living with that now. But even back then, people thought, oh, those guys are the serious ones on national security. It's like, really? Like, when their pundits are, like, spouting fucking conspiracy theories about Monica Lewinsky and shit, I, it's, I don't know. I feel like everybody now gets it. When I look back in my lifetime, I was born in the fucking 80s, believe it or not. and they, <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> Republicans have always been on the fucking wrong side of things, you know? So I don't, this seems like a, no, a no-brainer to me. Anyway, my second
3: tweet of the week I've got from Bonnie Glazer, who is a senior advisor for Asia and the director of the China Power Project at the CSIS. So in recent news, um, the U.S. just approved a $620 million upgrade package for Patriot surface-to-air missiles to Taiwan, saying that this was a way for them to deal with like a rising threat from China. Um, so this particular tweet is responding to one from Hu Zijin, I hope I'm saying that right, Pete, <laughs> regarding this news. Um, So whose tweet reads, the PLA is fully capable of destroying all of Taiwan's military installations within a few hours before seizing the island shortly after. Chinese army and people have such self-confidence. At the same time, we strongly support maintaining peace. Sparking a conflict should be avoided. To which Glazer responds, if China attacks Taiwan, the PLA will learn what it is like to fight an insurgency. Invading and controlling Taiwan are not the same. Which I thought she was pretty spot
0: on about, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, Global Times is obviously a mouthpiece for the uh, fucking CCP. But the belligerence that's on display in the original tweet is like on theme, on pattern with like a growing belligerence. The Chinese, where he started using the term wolf warrior diplomacy. For themselves before like other people started saying it and it's this, these are not reasonable statements to be making unless you are trying to be confrontational and antagonistic and regardless of the like underlying reasons for the the sentiments or the attitude the fact that like china is thinking through using force against taiwan one that's not surprising but two i really hope that they are thinking through the costs that bonnie is highlighting here because it seems like an insurgency within Taiwan would be inevitable if China tried to occupy it. And there's no victory for China in terms of unification by just raining down missiles on Taiwan. China can fuck Taiwan up, but taking control of it is like another story entirely. And if China's not making the right cost calculations here, then it may decide that the benefits outweigh the costs when the truth, when the opposite is actually true. We can all avoid disaster by making more accurate calculations, I think, um, which is the use of, of Bonnie's tweet. Let's jump
2: into Antro Analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. Okay, so for Antro Analysis this week, we've got an article in Foreign Policy called, Crises Only Sometimes Need to Change, Here's Why, by Sherry Burnham. And the, the premise of this piece is a pushback against the widespread assumption among many, particularly progressive thinkers, that the sheer magnitude of this historical moment, the kind of extreme economic measures being forced, the devastation that's being caused by the pandemic, by the shifting from the Unipoly moment, everything, that that isn't guaranteed to prompt change. In particular, it's not guaranteed to prompt progressive change. Mm. And to make that point, Berman points to a whole host of moments that history, but particularly powerfully, she points to 1848 when a range of revolutions destroyed dictatorships across Europe. And yet subsequent recriminations after those revolutions led to the introduction of new systems of autocracy, and historians now call 1848 the turning point at which history failed to turn. And that's the cautionary warning that Berman wants to issue. And she diagnoses the reason for that failure to turn as a consequence of intra-left divisions. Nobody could agree, so no positive change took place. The left was too busy diagnosing the problem and arguing over that diagnosis, what she calls being doctors to build something new in its place. And so then the question comes up, what's necessary for that change to actually occur? What is is necessary for a crisis to cause change? And she says that two things are required. One, a coherent narrative and united ideas about what that change should look like. And then two, power. And so on the first, on ideas, she cites Milton Friedman. Um, Quote is that only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. Obviously, Milton Friedman is not a luminary of the left, but right. it, it's a good quote. <laughs> yeah, It's a good quote, I think, illustrating the, the task of academics and policy walks at a moment like this. You have to have a, both a coherent critique of the old order and a, a coherent, attractive proposition for a new one. And then Berman on the topic of power, says that Biden, who has somehow emerged as a surprising advocate of at least some systemic change, needs to unite the fractious Democratic constituencies and, and bring on his coattails quite a strong majority to usher in lasting political shifts. I, I loved this piece, to be honest. I thought it was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it also left me more positive than I had been. Because I think that those I think there is quite a, a clear and coherent narrative about one, the problems of the current world order and two, the what we need to to change about it. You can see that in the work of lots of scholars on inequality and climate change. Recent developments with Biden, while you have to be cautious in your optimism, I, I think there is a fair amount of reason for optimism, but I was curious to hear your take on it, Ben.
0: So I love the piece. I sort of come out on the opposite side of you in terms of optimism pessimism, but that's more of a sense of ability than it is like a defensible analytical position. Right for for what it's for. I mean, for both of us, right? For um, yeah. Sherry Berman, it's worth noting is a leading political scientist. She is, I think, I mean, arguably the top scholar on the leftist politics of europe in the interwar period so like Hmm. building up how left coalition coalitions did and did not coalesce uh leading up to the rise of the nazi party and opposite like failure to oppose the nazi party adequately and all of that and she is uh, one of the forerunners analytically historically for a lot of the work on like uh, progressive understanding of world politics today, which is why she's like particularly great in this piece and why she's like uniquely suited to write this piece. I mean, you know, the the punchline, she had this great line, crises are fairly common, fundamental transformations are rare. I think that's, that's pithy and that's right. And the way that I see all this progressive foreign policy shit that we're doing, like I'm extremely pessimistic about Biden incorporating this stuff. He has unity working groups with the AOCs of the world, with progressives on domestic policy. He has none on foreign policy, right? Foreign policy is owned by the Mandarins still. It's still the establishment technocratic class. And so like, I see no reason to expect that Biden is going to like implement a progressive foreign policy or a progressive approach to national security. Mm -hmm. I'm super pessimistic about that. More Uh, optimistic on domestic policy, possibly. But one of the reasons why I think it's worth investing in progressive foreign policy ideas and discourse anyway is because of this logic of having the shit lie around. Like, what's on the shelf at the time of crisis, you know? Let these critiques of the existing way seep in and become a kind of conventional wisdom And at the same time, continue to build like stack ammo, build up the credibility, the well, like the wellspring of ideas for an alternative way of doing business in foreign policy and national security and keep that that discussion alive so that when the opportunity is right, there will be stuff laying around that can be imported into the system. And it's like it had Bernie won or had Warren won the Democratic nomination this time around, it would have been that moment, I think, particularly with COVID, because they were the right trans, uh, what is it, conveyor belts for this buildup of ideas in progressive foreign mm. policy. They, were, they could be that vehicle. Biden, I think, is not that vehicle, but that doesn't mean that you don't need the stuff lying on the shelf still. Shit will happen in the future, and, it, like, if you're progressive, regardless of which, you know, variant of it you sign on to, you do want to, like, you, you want this stuff to be available for the future. And you are betting that your worldview is the, the best or the most congruent with how the world is, is trending, you know? Like, mm-hmm. you, you think you're on the right side of history. Like, you should. You know, that should be your bias. That means you should be willing to wait and keep stacking ammo right? Keep filling the shelves while sustaining a, the, the valid critiques of like how the system is flawed now, you know? Yeah. So th- that's the sense in which I'm optimistic. When you take the longer view, even when your ideas are not getting implemented, just the fact that they're out in the ether, out in the discourse, like there's value, there's latent value in that. In that sense, I'm optimistic, but not narrowly about Biden, I don't think.
2: I think it's it's useful to return to that this Metaphor, because the attractive force of the logic in Berman's piece, and also to return to that Milton Friedman quote, is that you don't get to choose your vessel as a as a policy policy advocate. Mm. I mean, obviously Warren and Sanders would have been the perfect vessel for this kind of progressive change, but if you're If your theory of change is to rely on a a once-in-a-generation candidate, then you're only going to get change done once every generation, and that that's not a sustainable model. So exactly as you say, you have to have these policy ideas floating in the ether so that candidates you might not have chosen as your perfect vessel may still pick them up, like in the way Clinton embraced third-way neoliberalism even though he wasn't probably the, the preferred candidate, the preferred vessel for kind of Friedman-esque rise.
0: Yeah. So, like, that worked in reverse. But, yeah, like, that's the same yeah. principle at play. No, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, and Biden, to be totally honest, too, like, out of sheer pragmatism or opportunism, I can imagine Biden picking up on a couple strands of progressive foreign policy on, like, an issue-by-issue issue basis. And it's just, it's not going to overturn the system, you know, we're not talking about revolution here. And it will not look like the unified field theory for progressive grand strategy or whatever. But it will, depending on what happens, he could pull on some progressive strands of suspending arms sales to Saudi Arabia or defending human rights in Xinjiang, which is now a genocide or flipping North Korea. Like there's all kinds of places where you could see, out of pure opportunism, grabbing an idea that is genuinely coming out of the progressive camp. It's just that that will not be a signal or a trend toward a larger shift, you know? So, like, you might be able to get small wins still, even in Biden's world.
2: Yeah, just generally a, a really interesting article. Would highly recommend to anyone just to read for, those, for that logic of progressive change.
0: Yeah, one of the best, one of the best pieces I've seen this year. Alright, time for Ask Me Anything where people ask me anything.
4: Yeah, so the first question this week is from Sean Wolfgang, a friend of the pod. There's been a lot of enlightening and thoughtful discussion on future directions for progressive left US foreign policy lately, including on your podcast. What directions do you see the other side of the aisle going in the post-Trump era?
0: So this is a great question. Also, he bought us some coffee. So thank you, Sean. What does a post Trump kind of Republican foreign policy look like from reasons of my own sanity, plus there's a gap? I've focused overwhelmingly on progressive foreign policy. But on the right, like we're seeing all kinds of splits within the right, right? Like you still have the Milton Friedman sort of purist neoliberal constituency, which is basically like American Enterprise Institute, the think tank, that kind of foreign policy. And that is also like neoliberalism and neoconservatism tend to go together. That would look very much like Bush era foreign policy, which is obviously like not good, right? There would be like that free trade agenda there. And there would be Uh, sort of like a return to detente of sorts with China or like the old modus vivendi with China would, you know, make a comeback to some extent. But you would have your militarism applying to parts of the world where uh, you're not reliant on trade with that country, where the country doesn't have nukes, you know, and so that's where you get into quagmires. Um, And that's part of the neoconservative bet. You would have a hollowing out of uh, multilateralism, which is also what you had in the Bush administration. So like that would be pretty bad. But that's like one um, slice of the Republican Party. And I I don't even think that's the dominant slice anymore. This nationalist, I don't like the word populist, but the nationalist, anti-intellectual, racist adjacent part of the party is the Trump cult. It's the dominant part of the party. It's completely legitimate now to be opposed to free trade. It's completely legitimate to be openly hostile. It's hard to be a proponent of restraint. It's easy to support militarism and it's easy to embrace class of chival- clash of civilizations thinking. And so like what all that adds up to to me like it looks very much like a Trump foreign policy. Like I think the, poli- the foreign policy that we've seen the past three years, as awful as it is, is the future of Republican foreign policy. The only difference being that, like, you might see a little bit more consistency on the implementation, which, you know, frankly, I'm not even sure that would be a good thing. I, Republican foreign policy, I think, is is going to be in They're like the champions of the dark side at this point. And so not friends of the pod. I don't know what to say.
4: OK, the second question. It was from Emily McDonald. Is South Korea changing its North or North Korea nuclear policy? Is it giving up denuclearization?
0: So this is a very good question. I've been talking to some friends in South Korea and the, you know, sort of left government uh, over there in Seoul. From what I've heard, they cannot, they're still reluctant to give up on denuclearization as rhetoric. Like they're, they're not willing to renounce the goal of denuclearization publicly But at some point last year, they decided internally that the denuclearization party is over, that North Korea has nukes. It's a fact of life. And so their policies on like peace and reconciliation are premised on even and even like, you know, getting troop drawdown from the U.S. or whatever. It's all premised on an assumption that they're not going to get substantial progress toward denuclearization and they're okay with that that's just the way it is there's a strand of thinking on the left in south korea frankly that um like there's an alternative future where north korea's nukes become south korea's nukes in a very like perverted kind of way because like if they are one korea and if they unify and if north korea can bring nukes to the party that means South Korea gets to enjoy those nukes too. You know what I mean? Um, and so there's all kinds of like flaws in that logic. But I've heard this before. There are movies in like its pop culture uh, imagination where that's the, it's very much the case, you know. And so the, for all intents and purposes, the current government in South Korea does not have denuclearization as any kind of goal but you probably won't see them admit that openly. What you'll see is them downplaying denuclearization while emphasizing things like uh, peace and reconciliation, even when it seems like it doesn't quite make sense given what North Korea is doing. And that's very much what's happening now, right? North Korea is being a total dick to everybody, especially South Korea and South Korea just keeps coming back anyways, kind of hat in hand, trying to make nice, Um, and they're not giving up on this Korean peace initiative idea, and, you know, good for them, I suppose, but that's not going to change North Korea. If your goal is denuclearization, all this peace stuff really doesn't make sense. It's a U.S.-North Korea issue to be resolved. The question is astute, because, like, I don't see anybody else in Washington really asking this question, and I think the answer is nuanced. Formally, no, they're not giving up denuclearization. Informally, they already gave up denuclearization
4: sorry the third question this week is from anonymous um who also has said you can call me old kanye (laughs) (laughs) i think it's meant to be what is kanye west's chance in 2020 and why do you think he is running at all
0: yeah so we sort of touched on this already i think he's i think he's running out of self aggrandizement and to help trump i don't want to be conspiracy theory guy but i think he is I think he is actively trying to help Trump while building up himself. Um, I just can't believe that he would really think he would win. His chances of winning are not serious, but his chances of throwing the election to Trump is what I what I'm worried about. So I I see him as this like an outlier threat, right? Like low probability, high impact. Something to definitely think through and try and manage the the downside risk that he poses but i mean it's not it's not it's the spoiler role not that he's gonna win that's the thing all right gang that's gonna do it wpr.pub slash undiplomatic for the world politics review newsletter our sponsor buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic catch you next time peace